0: to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, well, before we get started, let's let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we always want to petition the Holy Spirit as we open God's word here. So, Lord, we just thank you so much for this time together. God, we pray that you would anoint this message, Lord, as we finish Hebrews chapter 12. We pray that... Your Holy Spirit, your anointing God from 1 John 2.27 would teach us everything about the danger of refusing you, and we pray that God, you would give each one of us an urgency to live for you every single day. We love you, and we praise your name this morning, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. We're going to finish. Oh, thank you. We're going to finish Hebrews chapter 12 today. It's the fifth and final warning. Uh, It's been a while between the fourth and the fifth warning in Hebrews. But if you remember, the entire book of Hebrews is structured around these five warnings to us, the believers. And on our outline here, the true and better response is faith. So We've gone through all of these kind of heavy theological discussions around, remember Jesus was the superior deliverer, he was our high priest, we talked a lot about our spiritual maturity in him, how we were under a new and better priestly covenant, he was a better sacrifice, it was once and for all, the the veil was torn, and so we had access to an open house forever. And then the hall of faith in chapter 11 about all these great people in the Bible and what they did in pressing on in faith by serving the Lord. And finally, chapter 12 is kind of the application chapter of, well, what do do we do with that then as believers? Well, our true and better response, like everyone in chapter 11, is to press on by faith. And if you don't press on by faith, there's a there's a danger tied to it which is these last few verses of chapter 12 it's the fifth and final warning of chapter 12 so if you remember like i mentioned the whole book is structured around these five warnings to the believer to us it starts off in chapter 2 with the danger of drifting and each one of these builds upon the uh, the other okay it's a it's a progression away from the lord you start to drift Then your heart is hardened because you are getting calloused to what God's ways are and what he would have you do. You fail to mature as a result. Then you start to commit willful sin, and then finally you refuse God. And that's the progression. And remember, each warning builds upon the other, and it kind of culminates with ultimately apostasy. And then you see Jesus' response to that in Revelation 3.16, so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of your mouth, my mouth," he said in Revelation 3:16. Now, that, that lukewarmness, remember, Revelation two and three, the seven letters of the seven churches, they' are written to the believer. And so what he's saying is, when you are lukewarm and you're refusing him, you're, you, you can't be used for the kingdom in that way. He can't really encourage someone. To move one way or the other when you live a life of indifference. Okay, it's very difficult, right, to convince someone to do something when they're just totally indifferent. And you see that a lot even with all of us that have kids in the room have seen this before. But when your kids are indifferent, right, it's very difficult to convince them or to even discipline them one way or the other. It's just a hard situation to be in. Okay, moving on here. Last week, we talked about the journey from Sinai to Zion. Remember that whole journey of when God spoke to them at Sinai, and he was calling them to get to Mount Zion, to into the Holy Land, into the Promised Land, where he can, he can be their rest. And they refused to hear from God. They did not want to hear his word. And as a result, the journey to Zion never materialized. Remember, that entire generation was killed off in the wilderness because they ultimately refused him in the, in the most extreme way, which was not taking him at his word to go in and to conquer those giants in the land. And remember, they sent in the 12 spies. Two of them came back, Joshua and Caleb, who believed God, and the other 10 refused him and denied him. And the entire congregation went along with the 10 that refused him. And as a result, they perished in the in the wilderness. But you can see... The progression and the result of all five of these warnings from the time the children of Israel institute the Passover to the point they are denied access in the promised land. So remember, they're saved by the blood, just like we are. We're saved by the blood of Jesus. They were saved by the blood of the Lamb in the Passover in Egypt. Now, just as a side note, the Passover feast is not a Levitical feast. Okay, and this, is, and this is important for us today to understand this. The Passover was instituted long before the Levitical feasts and the, and the rituals and sacrifices and things. Now, it's memorialized in it to continue holding the Passover, but most of those feasts are held and administered by the high priest or a priest of the tribe of Levi. The Passover is the only feast that is administered by the head of the household. It's not administered by a priest under the tribe of Levi. And this is so important for us today because if, for all the men in the room that are married with kids, you as the head of your household have a responsibility to, to administer your family in the Lord, to minister to them and to get them into that covering and to witness to them and to pray for them and to be a spiritual warrior for them. Okay, that's your responsibility. And I love how the Lord modeled that in the very Passover feast itself, that the head of the household administered that. It's amazing. So everyone of fighting age, remember, 20-plus years and older, passed away in the wilderness because they denied God. And God swore that they would not enter into the land because of their rebellion. They refused him and so they didn't enter into a place of rest. Now, entering the promised land, it's not the equivalent of entering heaven. Okay, so don't, don't try to kind of draw that analogy between the two. The promised land, there were still wars, that, but they were invited into an area of rest where Jesus was fighting those wars for them from Joshua 5. Okay, he fought the battle at Jericho. So, How does that relate to you and I today? It's a place of entering in a full submission to Christ so that he is ruler over your life and your life is at a place of rest as a result because he's fighting your battles, he's leading your family, he's your provision, your source, he's taking care of you. Remember, Joshua and Caleb were the only two that believed and trusted God for that. So God rewarded them. Now, on on these warnings... They are a progression from the danger of drifting all the way to the danger of refusing. And as I was studying this week and thinking through this, I I was looking at them laid out. And I thought, well, after the danger of refusing, what's next? And I thought, well, then you probably start going back down. You start, you commit more willful sin. You fail to mature even more. Your heart gets even more hard. And then you drift even further away. And so I, I was thinking, okay, it goes this way and then back and I start asking the Lord, and again, everything I say up here, Acts seventeen eleven applies all for everyone in the room. You've got to go test everything that Matt says against the word of God on your own and make sure that it, it sounds right to you and, and is correct. But this, da- this danger of drifting, <laughs> thank you, Chris, this danger, and or you can check with Chris. He can let you know either way. But the danger of drifting to refusing, and it, and it goes back down. And I was asking the Lord, Lord, does this, does this progression move in both directions over time? And he said one thing to me. He said it moves like a serpent. That's all he said. And when you look at it, I could see that now. Because you go from drifting to refusing, and it curves back down to drifting, back through to refusing, and back through to drifting. And so... I I just love that he answered that for me um, because it is a progression. And we all know what the serpent represents, right? It represents Satan and the Nakesh, the shining one. And anyway, so take that for what it's worth. But I think there's something deeper on that progression there. Okay, I want to start back in verse 12. We'll just read through a few of these verses that we've covered since uh, two weeks ago to today. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down... who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. And remember, we went through the, the whole bitterness lesson on that is, that is a major door of the enemy. When you let bitterness take root, those demonic forces and the, and the enemy will get you so wrapped up in that that you will just stall in your walk with God. Just like Esau, he was bitter from the womb. Mary God said that. And he, he was so indifferent and indignant about his birthright as the firstborn that he sold all of it for one just measly bowl of porridge with Jacob. Okay, verse 17 here, For ye know that how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor into blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. Remember, we studied all this last week at Sinai. The children of Israel did not want to hear from God. They told Moses, please don't ever let that happen again. This is terrifying. There's blackness and thundering and hell and fire and We don't want to hear from God. You go speak to him and tell us what he says. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are coming to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable Company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Okay, so we dove into all those verses last week, verse by verse. So starting today, okay, so because we've come to a place of a better covenant with Jesus. We have a better place, right? The Lord spoke to them on the earth. His blood was not shed yet, but he met them out of this pillar of fire from heaven, spoke to them. They refused him. Remember, they did not want to hear from him. They refused him. So now God is saying, starting in verse 25 today, where we're going, see that ye refuse not him that speaketh. So this is the start of the fifth warning. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. So in the Greek, that word there, that ye refuse, it means to avert by entreaty or seek to avert, to deprecate, to refuse, decline, to shun, avoid. And then this was my favorite definition of one excusing himself for not accepting a wedding invitation to a feast. Okay, the church is the bride of Christ. And we talked about this in Revelation, and again, Acts 17, 11 applies a thousand percent. You know, and I have sought this deeply in the Word of God, and I'm just sharing with you all my thoughts and kind of my journey and finding things out in the Bible and as I look through you know, the church is the bride of Christ, but nowhere do I really see that all of the church is the bride of Christ. When you look at Jesus, he's, he's called the last Adam. Well, if he's a type, if the first Adam was a type of him, the bride was taken out of the side of him. Uh, that's where Eve came from. She was a subset of Adam. And, and I've, I've really been praying through this a lot and seeking the Lord ever for the last like three or four years. I still don't really have a full answer on it, but there's two spots in the Bible where the bride is a subset of the body. and I don't, So I don't know if that's true or not. I'm just throwing that out there for deep thought for you guys. But see that you refuse not him that speaketh. So if you refuse him, in the Greek, you're excusing yourself for not accepting a wedding invitation to be a part of the bride. I thought that was really interesting. So remember, the people did not want to hear from or speak to God directly, as we mentioned at Exodus 20, verse 19. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. God wanted a nation of kings and priests, and he couldn't get it, which is why he formed the church, partly. And that's all from Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6. Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. Kingdoms have kings over them, they have dominion. He wanted a nation, a kingdom with Israel, and they refused. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Okay, and that same thing is what he wants today. That's why he calls us, the church, a royal priesthood. So we are a body of kings and priests. That's why in Revelation 4, the 24 elders sing a new song that by his blood he's made us kings and priests to our God. There's only three groups of people in the Bible that are known as kings and priests. It's Melchizedek as a type and foreshadowing of Jesus from Genesis, Jesus himself, and then the church. There's only three groups. And we have that special privilege as the body of Christ to be called kings and priests. And so don't take that lightly. But the final warning contrasts the children of Israel refusing God with Christians today doing the same thing. So if God came down to earth to speak to them directly and they could not escape, then what chance of escape do we have as Christians today today? when he speaks to us directly from the throne room of the universe. you know He's speaking from a place of absolute righteous holiness in the presence of God where he sits on his throne today. Because when he speaks to us today, we have the, the third member of the Trinity indwelling in us, the Holy Spirit. So literally, he's speaking not just from heaven, but into us directly. Not just through our ears, but in our spirit. And so if they couldn't escape him, how much more can we escape in the situation that we're in? Do you see how God's drawing the parallel here? And he references this Exodus generation for us as Christians to look toward as an example in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12. So when you read through that, you'll see that God has a lot of lessons for us. So let's just take a few of these verses here in 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1. Moreover, brethren... I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses. Remember, their journey models us. They're saved by the blood in Egypt, by the blood of the lamb, the Passover. They go through the sea in baptism. Their first fight, their first war is when they strike the rock and get water and they fight Amalek. Remember, that's, we studied that a couple of weeks ago when Moses' hands fell they were losing the battle and when his hands were lifted when Joshua or Aaron and her were next to him lifting his hands they were winning the war well they weren't they they did not have a single battle in their lives until they had water and what does water represent for us the holy spirit and i i will argue or or my observation there for all of us is that you're really once you're saved you're kind of you're there and you get the holy spirit though that's when the war starts The war really starts for you when you get the water, when you get the Holy Spirit. That's when they first fought Amalek. All were baptized and did eat of the same spiritual meat. We talked a lot about manna. And did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, this is fascinating because nowhere in the Old Testament does that rock, does it say that rock followed them around. But can you imagine this giant stone Following them on their journeys. And but it was it modeled Christ. And remember, the first time they needed water, God told Moses, Strike the rock, and the water gushed out to all of them. The second time, he said, Speak to the rock. And Moses was angry with the children of Israel because he was they were driving him crazy. They wouldn't listen to him, they rejected him, he and Aaron. He's sitting there pleading with God, Lord, what did you give me? Why are there millions of people that want to kill me at any moment that hate me for bringing them out of Egypt? And I didn't do anything. All I did was just do what you said. And so he's angry with them, so he strikes the rock the second time, and that's when God gets angry with him. Remember, God, from that point, God says, okay, you're you're done. Your ministry is finished. I told you to speak to it. You struck it. So you can see the promised land, but you will never lead the children of Israel into it. And what he was supposed to do was model Christ's first and second coming, where he struck the first time and the second time he speaks. So he was supposed to model that, but he he got angry and let his emotions get the best of him. In verse 5, "...but with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. So twenty-three thousand, if you remember that. From the Old Testament. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Now remember that whole event. They were tempting and murmuring and mad at God and, and saying all these bad things about him. And then God sent these fiery serpents into the camp that were biting and killing people. And Moses runs to him, Lord, what do I do? And God said, Okay, make a brazen serpent, put it on a pole, and lift it up in the wilderness. And anyone that looks to it will be healed. And so in that, in that, nowhere in the Old Testament is that story explained until you get to Jesus and, and his discourse with Nicodemus in John 3. But just, the, just like Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And the brass representing the metal that can withstand fire represents sin. The serpent representing sin, it's put on a pole and lifted very high it was on a mountain so that anyone in the camp of these millions of people could see it from wherever they were. And it was to model Jesus bearing our sin and withstanding the fire of the judgment of God and lifting up on the cross where anyone that just looks to him would be healed. Because everything in the Old Testament speaks of him. Remember in Psalms 40 verse 7, that in the volume of the book it's written of me. Now all these things happened unto them for ensembles, and they were written for our Admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Now, that verse 11 is interesting. On whom the ends of the worlds are come. We are in the end times as the church. Uh, the last days started as soon as the church was formed, and they are they have been accelerating since Israel became a nation on May 14th of 1948. But in any case, back to verse 25 here. We're in the same danger as the generation from the Exodus. That's, that's the point. We can close off our ears from hearing God. And seven times in Revelation 2 and 3, God admonishes us. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So we've got to have our ears in the Spirit open to what God is saying to us in our lives. Not just us individually, but us as a church, us as families, our children, how to lead our lives. Okay, in, in Hebrews 12, verse 19, you remember in the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. Not be spoken to them anymore. They, they were spiritually blinded at that moment because they didn't want to hear anything from God. Okay, so God's voice shook the earth back then. Now, the second time, it will shake not only the earth, but it will shake the heavens. And that's what he's meaning here in verse 26. Moving on to Hebrews 12. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not the earth only, but also heaven. So he shook the earth, and this is referenced in Judges 5, verses 4 through 5. Lord, when thou wentest out of Syria, when thou marchest out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped and the clouds also dropped water. The mountains melted from before the Lord, even that Sinai from before the Lord, God of Israel. And this, this is also referenced, you can look these up in your notes, Psalm 68 verses 8 and 9, 77 verse 18, Psalms 114 verse 7. But he also promised to shake the heavens. Now, just understand the picture of God shaking the earth on Sinai. He marched to Sinai, and literally mountains were melting before him. And then there's this pillar of fire scorching the top of the mountain, stretching all the way through our galaxy to the ends of the universe, that fire coming from the throne room of heaven. Okay, that I can understand and relate a little bit of how that would be terrifying. You know, to see the mountains literally just melting down in this giant earthquake happening. And Moses and the Lord saying, okay, come here, guys. I got something to share with you. You know, I, I don't know that many of us would be sprinting to that environment. But if you had trusted and you truly trusted in the Lord from what he did in the Exodus event, you probably would have been. Because, But just keep in mind, there's no faith in anything you see. Remember Hebrews 11.1, 1, uh, faith is the evidence of things not seen. And so they should have had faith in his word and run to him, not what they were seeing with the mountains melting and this pillar of fire, you know, et cetera. But speaking from heaven, he's going to shake not only the earth, but also heaven. So this is a quote from Haggai 2, 6 through 7. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Okay, the desire of all nations, that's not a necessarily a good desire. Uh, most nations want to be at war with God. So in Haggai 2 6 and 7, he will shake the nations, all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. He's making a reference to Revelation 19 when Jesus returns on the earth and vanquishes all the nations who surround Jerusalem. Okay, and that's in the second coming of Christ. So in Haggai, that desire of all nations, he's referencing from Psalms 2. Remember, we studied that last week in Psalms 2, that all the nations want to cut asunder the bands of God off of them and go to war, knowingly go to war with Christ. I still I cannot think of anything uh, more ridiculous than to say, yeah, I'll take up arms against God. That, that is not going to end well for them. Uh, we see it in Zechariah 14. They literally melt at the word of his mouth. Okay, shaking the heavens. It occurs during the tribulation before Jesus returns in Revelation 19 to establish the millennial kingdom. And this is referenced in Isaiah 13, starting in verse 6. How ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid, pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that traveleth. Now, anywhere in the Old Testament you see a reference to a woman in travel, or in labor pains, or bringing forth a child, If it's talking in a prophetic nature, it's always speaking of the end times, that seven-year tribulation, because Jacob will be as a woman in travel from Jeremiah. That's the time of Jacob's trouble, of the grieving nation of Israel bringing forth back the Messiah. It's an analogy that God uses. They shall be amazed at one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, Cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, this is verse 9, to lay the land desolate and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it for the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. Okay, he's getting into a lot of physics discussions now about the end times. The sun shall be darkened and is going forth and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man more, a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Now, if you want to go chase that on your own, the golden wedge of Ophir, that's interesting. But a man more precious. Why is gold precious? Because it's rare, right? It's hard to find. It's hard to, to dig out. You've got to refine it. In the end times, this is exactly what Jesus meant when he said, unless those days be shortened, no flesh would survive. And what he's saying is that there, mankind will be so little left at the end of that seven-year period when he returns. He's even referencing that in Isaiah 13, that man will be more precious than gold at that point. It will be hard to find people. And if you go and do the math in Revelation, starting with the first seal and go down at the percentages of the world that are taken out, you can see very quickly how it gets very, very small. Uh, we do know from Zechariah also, uh, chapter 13, that two out of three Jews are killed during the seven-year tribulation. So only a third make it out. In World War II, two-thirds made it out. So it's, it's more than double Uh, the tragedy from World War II. Okay, starting back to Isaiah 13, verse 13 here. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place. Now, I am, as all of you know, uh, there's no easier way to interpret the Bible than literally, that God, God says exactly what he means. He says it so that we don't have to guess about it. The earth shall remove out of her place. Well, the earth is, is spinning not only in a circle this way at tens of thousands of miles per hour, but it's also rotating on orbit around the sun. Every 365 and a quarter days, it makes a rotation around the sun. Every 24 hours, it makes one 360 degree rotation. So the earth moving out of her place. Now, can you imagine the speed of the earth that we are moving and all of a sudden the orbit is just shifted instantaneously out of its place. And what keeps us where we are right now is obviously gravity and a lot of things, a lot of electromagnetic forces in the galaxy keep us where we're going. Imagine when those are broken and the earth is literally just shifted. Okay, there would be land tides. uh, The seas would literally just cover parts of the earth. The, the, this is why in Revelation God says the mountains and the islands flee away. It's because the stress of the speed that we're going, for God to all of a sudden take it with his hands and just move it, those tectonic plates, there'd be so much sheer stress that they would just rip apart and the mountains would go flat all of a sudden. The, the islands would just be covered up. So I think he's meaning this very literally, which is why... He says, in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger, but in Matthew 24, look at this sub-bullet here, Matthew 24, verses 36 and 37, but of that day and hour knoweth no man. Now, if you're not familiar with Matthew 24, Matthew 24 is a discourse from Jesus to the Israelites on how to survive the seven-year tribulation, okay? He's talking to them during that time. This is what you do when you see the Antichrist go into the Holy of Holies, when he commits the the abomination of desolation, you flee the mountains, you don't grab anything, you get out of town, pray that it's not on the Sabbath, he says, or on a holy day. That's one of the ways you know it's to the Jewish people. But it's his instructions to them to flee and how to survive that time. And he says something very interesting in Matthew 24. He says, but of that day and hour knoweth no man... Know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, one of the things that categorizes the days of Noah, it wasn't just sin was rampant. There was genetic manipulation. Uh, the fallen angels were trying to corrupt the human genome to stop the line of the Messiah from coming forth. But there was also a pole shift. The world, that's probably why our world is tilted at 23 and a half degrees on an axis is from the days of Noah. And that's probably how the oceans flooded the earth. It wasn't just that it rained for 40 days. The earth literally, God in the days of Noah, took the earth and tilted it 23 and a half degrees. So the oceans literally just covered the earth almost instantaneously. That's why a lot of the cities were just destroyed and wiped out. And because... Before the flood, and this is all, you guys need to go check all this in Acts 17.11. But, but if you go and you look, but I think it's just fascinating. But if you go and you study fossil records before the flood of Noah, there was definitely a universal climate. Uh, woolly mammoths and animals that we associate with Antarctic regions had tropical vegeta- vegetation in their mouth. Where, that's in the fossil records. So why was it there? Why were there palm trees on the South Pole? Well, it's because it probably, if you took the earth and you put it parallel, where it's straight up and down with the sun, there would be no ice caps. It would be a universal climate all the way around the world. And that's likely what it was before the flood of Noah. And so there's a lot more going on in the universe than just, well, it rained for 40 days. I think the Lord did something radical. And he's making a reference to it here in Isaiah 13 and shaking the earth and the heavens, and moving the earth out of her place again in the end times. Because otherwise, how would nobody know the day nor the hour? Because he's saying in Matthew 24, in that time, in that seven-year tribulation, no man's going to know the time of day. No man will know the day nor the hour. Do you see the connection? And so, and we're going to look at this in just a second, but if the earth was removed out of her place, it would wobble around like a drunkard. Not, there'd be no consistency. The sun would come up for a second, it'd go away. The moon would come out maybe for three days straight, then go away. It would just wobble around space with no consistency. And he prophesied that in Isaiah here in a minute we're going to look at. But I think that's how, I think that's why Jesus says, in that day and hour, no man will, or in that time, no man will know the day nor the hour time you won't be able to keep time during the tribulation because there's no consistency it's also why in daniel that daniel chapter 7 the antichrist seeks to change the times and the seasons and the laws so when he's ruling the earth he's trying to institute a calendar of some kind it's amazing why would you try to change the seasons well this may be why So let's look at a few more of these verses in Isaiah 13, verse 14. And it shall be as the chaste roe and as the sheep that no man taketh up. They shall every man turn to his own people and flee everyone into his own land. Everyone that is found shall be thrust through, and everyone that is joined unto them shall fall by the sword. Their children also shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses shall be spoiled and their wives ravished. Okay, look at this in Isaiah chapter 24, verse 19. The earth out of her orbit. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage. And the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it and it shall fall and not rise again. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones, those are the rebellious angels, that are on high, and the kings on the earth, of the earth upon the earth. So in that time of tribulation, he's not just judging those on earth that are rejecting him, he's judging the angels also that rebelled against him. It's, it's, he's going to war, literally, against everyone that has rejected him. Okay, in verse 22 here, And they shall be gathered together, As prisoners are gathered in the pit and shall be shut up in the prison, and after many days shall they be visited. And that's literally what happens. They go down into the bottomless pit, the center of the earth. Jesus rules on on the earth in Jerusalem for a thousand years. He sets up the millennial kingdom. At the end of the thousand years, he visits them one last time. And then then they go into the lake of fire, but not before them. Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion. Remember, he's going to reign. Jesus is going to set up a throne on Mount Zion and reign in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. Okay, so the earth like a drunkard. So just keep that in mind. How would the earth move around like a drunkard unless God moved it out of its orbit and it's bouncing around the solar system aimlessly, no no consistency, And the people on the earth, can you imagine how seasick you probably would be? I just, there's no day, there's no night, it's back and forth, back and forth, and you are just literally are in a state that you have no idea how many hours have passed, because our atomic clocks work off of the the cesium atom and its vibration, and so then that won't happen, right? So you literally, you can't have time almost. It's just, it's amazing, just, I think God means exactly what he says, when he says those things. But anyway, go pray about that and, and seek that out, or you can check with Chris and make sure he's, <laughs> he understands it. Okay, and this word, yet once more. So in Haggai 2, verse 6, for thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once. So he's quoting, making that drawback in Hebrews 12, verse 27 here. Yet once more, yet once in a little while. So the Lord's connecting these verses and showing us That shaking the heavens will signify the removal of everything temporal in this world, everything worldly, everything of the flesh, everything against God that can no longer stand. Only things which are godly can eternally stand. And that's why it is so important to make sure that your family, your loved ones, your relatives are in Christ so they can stand. Otherwise, they will be shaken, and they will go to a place of eternal torment forever separated from him. God does not send anybody to hell. They only send themselves there for rejecting him. It's just that simple. Don't try to confuse it much more than that. But if they, he paved a way for everyone, and he's calling them. See, there's, God cannot, there's one battle that God cannot overcome on his own and win, and that's the battle within yourself because you and I have free will as sovereign beings, our, our main conflict is with our flesh. And that is one place that God cannot intercede and take over. He can draw you. He can work on you. He can call you. He can put so many people in your, life, in your lives to witness to you. But at the end of the day, you have to make that choice on your own. And if you have friends or loved ones that are battling that, you can intercede and pray. Keep in mind, Second Peter 3.9, God should not that any should perish. His will is that everyone is saved. Hebrews 2.9, he tasted death for every man, everyone. For God so loved the world in John 3.16 that he gave his only begotten son. He's a ransom for all, but especially those that accept him in the New Testament. He died for everyone, so he, his will is that none should perish. As a result, if you pray his will from 1 John 5, he will hear you from heaven and act. Okay, so you can intercede and be in prayer for those in your lives that are not saved. And he he can ramp up the efforts, right? Put more people in front of them, witness to them in a bolder way. But at the end of the day, it's their choice. No matter how much we want him just to save everyone instantaneously, at the end of it all, he doesn't get the one thing he paid for, which is all of mankind. And it's, it seems a little bit contradictive, but it's not. At the end of the day, God does not get his will, because he wanted everyone, and he can't overcome the sovereignty of man. But in any case, only things that are, that are godly can eternally stand. So can you be shaken? You know, what about in your daily life right now? What foundation is your family built upon? Okay, and this is exactly what God meant in Matthew chapter 7. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. See, heareth these things of mine and doeth them. So it's not just hearing, but you've also got to be a doer of the word, not just hearers of the word. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon the house. And it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. That rock, obviously, is Jesus, right? We all want our lives to be built upon the rock that is Jesus. If we're on the sand, if we build a life on sand, the storms of this world come through and you just will sink and be wiped away. But if you're built upon a rock, you can withstand any hurricane, storm force that the enemy tries to pull up against you. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto him unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Okay, so you want to build your house upon the rock. So in Hebrews 12 verse 28 here, Wherefore we receive in a kingdom that cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. You know, there is a kingdom yet to be established on the earth from Jesus in Revelation 20 through 22. There's also a heavenly kingdom that's been established for ages, and that's what, got, what Jesus went to go set up for you and I in John 14. He went to prepare a place for us, the new Jerusalem. Okay, this Greek word for we receiving it means to take to, to take with oneself, to join to oneself, and associate a companion. Okay, the kingdom is waiting for us, but we must choose to be partakers with Christ of that kingdom. So it's waiting for us, but we have to choose to partake of it. And the end of the verse gives us a hint of how to be a partaker with Christ, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And then the final verse for today in Hebrews 12, verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. What a way to end the chapter. Hey, re- hey, res- uh, receive this kingdom that cannot be shaken with godly reverence and fear. And oh, by the way, our God is a consuming fire. And so you better, you better take this serious. But the, here the Lord is quoting Deuteronomy 4, verse 24. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. See, he's jealous for your affection and all of you, not just a piece of you. God wants to be number one on a list of one, not one on a list of a thousand or three on a list of three million. He wants to be the one thing in your life. And when he's not, he's jealous for you. He's jealous for your affection. He's jealous for your time, your attention, your talents, right? What he puts you here to do. And the closer you get to the sun, S-O-N, nothing of the flesh in this world can survive. Nothing can. Your flesh will melt away. And the only thing that's left is what is in the spirit of you being born again. Because his nature is a consuming and refining fire. It's a requirement to get as close as possible that everything melt away. It's not something that he necessarily does. It's his very nature you know, again, try taking anything from the earth and launching it into space and see how close it gets to the S U N before it melts. It's not going to get very close. It's because the nature of that is a consuming fire. And like Jesus as a refining fire, the closer you get to him, the more you realize, I need to stop caring about that so much. I need to not pick up that offense. I need to. Get rid of this, whatever this is in my life. I need to uproot this. I need to get on my knees because my feet are melting away here. <laughs> and I need I need to get down. Think about when John in Revelation 1 saw Jesus, the, the glorified, ruling, reigning Christ. His eyes were as a flame of fire. And that's his nature. That's who he is as our king. And he wants everything of this world to melt away. It's just that simple. So to close out here, We cannot forsake our inheritance in this eternal kingdom because we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's the key, as chapter 12 closes out here. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. And great loss is waiting those that fail to be repentant, cling to Jesus, and press onward in his call. Again, all he wants is repentant obedience. That's it. That's all he's looking for, our hearts that are willing to turn to him and submit to him. Okay, so remember our warnings to heed. The danger of drifting, your heart gets hardened, you fail to mature, you commit willful sin, and then you refuse God. Then you start to commit more willful sin, you fail to mature even more, your heart gets even more hard, and or harder, sorry, that's more hard's not a word, harder. And then you drift even further away, right? And then your heart is hardened even further. You fail to mature more. It just goes back and forth. And it's this progression that leads down this road to apostasy. And that's unfortunately, according to a lot of verses in the New Testament, that's unfortunately how, how the most of the church, the body of Christ, ends in the end times before the rapture. Uh, that's why, remember, those seven letters of the seven churches they are written in a progression from the church of Ephesus to the church of Laodicea, and they lay out in advance the entire history of the church. Each of those letters, it it uh, models a chunk of time in history when you go back and study those. And so the church, the, la- the end-time church, the church of Laodicea, ends mostly lukewarm and indifferent for God. And there's a lot to that, but... A lot of that is because most of the church has not simply stuck to and studied the word of God for the last 60 or 70 years. And so it's allowed this gigantic void of indifference and false doctrine and false teaching creeps in and the people aren't fed the word of God. And so they just buy it, right? Because in a famine, you'll eat anything. And so anybody can get on stage and say anything and the people just eat it up because they're starving, something from the word of God. But look what Jesus said here. So not forsaking our inheritance. It's up to us, right? Revelation 3 verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast that no man take thy crown. You have something laid up for you in heaven that you can lose. If you are indifferent and reject God, it's not your salvation. It's a place in the kingdom with him. It's an inheritance. And that's why God lists out these five crowns in the New Testament. I don't think these are an all-inclusive list. There's probably an infinite number of crowns. And we know they have to be in some type of hyperdimension because when Jesus returns, they're stacked so, so high. He has all of these many crowns. And when we get there in the throne room of the universe in Revelation 4, we throw them at the feet of Jesus, praising him that he allowed us to be a part of what his plan was on this earth. But there's the crown of life from James 1.12, the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8, the crown of glory in 1 Peter 5.4, the crown imperishable in 1 Corinthians 9.25, the crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, and those are just the five that are listed. And then when you go to Revelation, there's the eight rewards to the overcomer, to eat of the tree of life in Revelation 2.7, Not heard of the second death in Revelation 2.11. To eat of the hidden manna, have a white stone with a new name in 2.17. The power over the nations when we return with Christ in Revelation 19. That's in Revelation 2.26. The white raiment that we get to adorn ourselves in as the bride in Revelation 3.5. The pillar and new name in Revelation 3.12. Sit with Christ on his throne in Revelation 3.21. And inherit all things in Revelation 21, 7. Those are all rewards to the overcomer. So what does it mean to become an overcomer? Well, first you have to be born again. Then you just have to have a simple heart of obedience and repentance towards God. Okay, if you remain loyal to God in Revelation 2, 1 through 3, you don't lose your first love. Remember the church at Ephesus lost its first love of Christ. You overcome trials and tribulations while remaining faithful in Revelation 2, 8 through 11. You be spiritually zealous for the Lord in Revelation 2.19. Do not deny Christ in Revelation 3.8 and 3.10. Don't defile your garments in Revelation 3.4. And keep the word of his patience in Revelation 3.10. So all of that to become an overcomer, then you'll start to become more and more in tune with what's going on in the world. And you'll become watchful. And this is why Jesus so often in the New Testament told us, be watching My favorite verse of that is Mark 13, verse 37. What I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. We've got to be watching for our king to call us home. But in the meantime, like he admonished us in Luke 21 to occupy. We're busy about the business of the king on the earth right now and for the kingdom. But we're in tune with what's going on prophetically. So we know the seasons, the times of when he'll call us home and we can be ready it's amazing he, just being watchful. The best way to be watchful is to be in the Word of God because the more you're in the Word of God, then the more you're in tune with what his prophetic word lays out. And then as you hear headlines, they're like filtered through the spirit in you and you start to see, okay, wow, we, we all of a sudden need something to buy, sell, and trade. I know where this comes from in Revelation 13. It's, um, it's amazing how there's, there's just a lot going on in the world since 2020 that we need to be aware of and in tune with because it's, it's all a precursor for the church being raptured out of here. But if you're listening to this and you haven't become born again, it's really simple. Romans 10:9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You're instantaneously born again you can never lose your salvation. How can one be unborn that is born? That's why Jesus used that, that analogy with Nicodemus in John 3. You must be born again in the Spirit. So if you've, if you've come across this, if you're here today and you need to know Jesus as your Savior, come find one of us. We can help you with that. But if you're watching this online and, and you don't know the Lord, get please do not delay. Get into the ark before that door closes. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, we thank you that you've laid out these five warnings that culminate with not refusing you. God, we pray that none of us would refuse your call on our lives. And God, we thank you that you have promised in Revelation to keep us from the very time of trouble that is to come upon the whole earth. Lord, we pray for those that are listening that do not know you. God, we pray that you stir in their lives, that you move heaven and earth to fight for them, to draw them to you, to call them, place people over and over and over in their lives every day that are a living witness to them of your truth and your salvation. God, let them lay on their knees in submission to you. Lord, you do not want anyone to perish. And God, we know that we have confidence you will hear us from 1 John 5 when we pray anything according to your will. So Lord, we love you. We thank you again for Hebrews 12. We pray that you'd be with us in this week ahead. And all that you have for us in 2023, God, we thank you for the call on our lives. Let us serve you humbly and in full submission to your will in our lives and our households, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.